I think if you feel strongly about something, you want to do it now. You don't want to wait. So you get to know people really well. You get to know their friends, their family. And for me, that's what being a doctor is about. It's about forming relationships with people. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome to Purposely with Susie Stanway, doctor, founder, humanitarian, activist, all-round purpose-driven oncologist. Susie is passionate about fighting cancer, particularly in parts of the world where research, treatment, and support are not so readily available and outcomes are worse. You'll hear what a committed individual she is. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Before we dive into it, can I just ask whatever platform you're on, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or another, please hit follow. If you like what you're hearing, please do leave a review. It helps me to grow the podcast more than you think. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Susie Stanway, a very warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk today. Admission from me at the beginning. I have to break my normal script, which is talking about vision and mission for most of my guests. So I'm going to do a little bit different with you and sort of drag you all the way back to when you were tiny little. And I'm thinking you possibly wanted to be a doctor and you wanted to be a medic. Would that be true? That would be true. Yeah. So I, I did. I, I was fascinated with medicine from quite a young age. My parents were both doctors. Not that that massively influenced me, or maybe it did. Who knows? Because they both said, think about other careers. And of course, you, you listen to your parents and then you want to do the opposite. But I grew up, yes, so surrounded by it, I suppose, and just finding it absolutely fascinating. And I loved the the mixture that medicine is of science and art. And yeah, I just found it completely fascinating. So I was quite a, a, a geeky teenager. And yeah, I really found it very interesting. So I, I, I suppose it all started when I I volunteered as a teenager in a hospice. And I think that probably got me interested in, in, in cancer because at that stage, hospices were mainly full of people living with cancer. And I just found it a real privilege to sit and talk with people at that stage of their life. And that really, yeah, that really got me interested. And then I applied to medical school and went to Bristol University spent a small stint in New Zealand after university and then yes decided to train to become an oncologist. Wonderful and that experience of being really young and working in the end of life care or just you know had some exposure to it it didn't sort of drag you down you you saw the light in it if you like? Yeah I've never found I mean clearly people get to you because I think the one thing about oncology and the one reason why many of us go into it is that you build up lasting relationships with people and especially as treatments are getting better even people who have metastatic disease particularly um with cancer like breast cancer are now living much longer so you get to know people really well you get to know their friends their family and for me that's what being a doctor is about it's about forming relationships with people and being part of that journey dare i call it that with them and playing your small part to maybe try and help so yeah that's really what drew me into oncology and the fact that it was so fast moving that it combines sort of cutting edge science with the art of practicing. One day, a young teenager came in who had been picked up by an NGO from a country in sub-Saharan Africa 
with a squamous cell cancer that was affecting her scalp and had eroded her skull and she came for treatment. She had been living with albinism and hadn't been sent out in the sun with proper protective clothing on on her head, if, if you like. And that's why she had developed this really horrible cancer. And she really touched me in a, in a way that I suppose a patient up until then hadn't. And I just thought, why is she here? Why am I sitting with her in a South London hospice in her last few days of her life, holding her hand, me as, a, as an almost stranger? Why is she not with her family? And I suppose for me, that was a turning point that I wanted to, within my career, play a small part in the global endeavour to try and reduce inequities between countries so that somebody like her would be able to be treated in her own country, surrounded by her own friends and family. I think that that's what did it for me. And up until that point, you'd just been sort of head down, bum up in terms of getting qualified, surviving university. You said you, you studied at Bristol and then you know, going on and, and walking the wards and, and understanding how the hospital works. But that was when the sort of penny dropped about the inequality and how you know, not two, one, uh, two patients are the same and the situation's not the same? Yes, I think so. I think you're right. I think it was at that stage. And then as time went on, it got me really interested in inequities between high-income countries, middle and low-income countries. And I started learning a little bit more about that, really. Because if, if you think about globally, you know, we're, we're 8 billion people in the world, but actually the majority of people in the world live in low and middle income countries. And increasingly, as countries um, did develop and transition, non-communicable diseases, that is conditions caused by things other than infection, are what causes the most amount of deaths. So, you know, 70% of deaths worldwide now are due to non-communicable diseases, you know, 41 million people. And cancer is one of the most prevalent non-communicable diseases, along with others like heart disease, diabetes, um, etc. So, you know, 17 million cases of, of cancer per year, 10 million deaths globally. And the majority of these are in low and middle income countries. And I think that up until recently, people had thought of cancer as a disease of, of rich people in rich countries, but increasingly that is not so. And so I think that there's a, a huge um, amount of work going on with the global community to scale up ability to diagnose, treat, manage cancer in low and middle income countries. And so it's been um, a, a real privilege to work alongside the global community addressing this. Yeah, we'll dive into that. So for you, these were facts. These, this was the reality that once you'd seen, you could unsee and just doing your job your normal job. I think that that's right. And I think you you realise how fortunate we are having a system like we have in the UK called the, called the NHS, where medical care is free at the point of, of access. And everybody's treated the same, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're educated and not so well educated. And I think that that's amazing. And I think that that's what we should all strive to have, because we know that that's the most efficient, effective way of delivering evidence-based cancer care to reach the, the, the most number of uh, the highest number of people. And in terms of being a doctor in a cancer setting, what's the toll? What was the toll on you in terms of, you know, often delivering bad news or dealing with the really emotionally fueled side of illness, I guess. Is it something that you cope with fine, like on a personal level? Or would you 
always take the stuff home and, and would it affect your your own personal life? So I think that anyone that works in this kind of field would be lying if they said it didn't affect them. And I think maybe one would question whether you're the right person to be doing it if it doesn't affect you. Because I think most of us have, you know, have compassion, have empathy, and of course it's going to affect you. But I think at the end of the day, one has to take a step back and say that this is about that person. And if I'm going to be of any help with the education that I've been privileged to have to that person, then I have to take a stand back and be the best support that I can be and, and use my education for their benefit. So I don't think you can allow yourself to get bogged down in what is their emotion and, and what's happening in their life. I think that you have to use the privileged position that you have to do the best that you can. And I think that that's how I look at it. Of course, you're going to go home. I'm not going to lie that I haven't gone home and cried at the unfairness of somebody lovely I've just seen in clinic or somebody who's been dealt a bad set of cards in life. Of course, that happens. But I think that you have to really put barriers up such that you protect yourself and such that you're able to carry on and be a good doctor. That's how I see it. When you had those conversations with your colleagues, were they, were, did you feel that they were sort of as aff- affronted, as passionate as you were around some of the inequality that you were seeing and some of these issues? Or did you feel like a little bit of an outsider and you needed to do something to change the, you know, the, the inequality that did exist? Yes. I mean, I'm sure, look, there are inequalities and inequities everywhere, even within high-income countries, we see that you know, based on age, based on sexual orientation, based on race, etc. So I, I think we're never going to escape that. The world is an unfair place. And I think that it's up to us to, you know, look at these inequalities and do what we can to reduce inequity in whatever sphere that we work in. I did find myself feeling particularly passionate about it, particularly in the sort of low and middle income setting and just feeling that it was particularly unfair. And I suppose, yeah, I, I, I suppose we all within medicine carve out our own path. And I think I feel strongly that it's up to you to create your own metrics for success for your life and your career. And although it may not be the traditional way to go, you know, that's OK. Being a top professor in a top academic institution isn't the only way to make your difference in the world. And as long as you have passion that you're doing it for the right reasons, I think that that drives you in a way that nothing else does. Because you'd reached consultant level and you were on this path, if you like. And I imagine it was sort of quite a pre-prescribed path for you that you could almost see the traditional route through to retirement, if you like. But you, it looks like from what I can see from your career, you decided to step off that and take another route and focus on humanitarian issues and sort of using your your skills and your knowledge and your passion for the stuff in, in a slightly different way? Like, wh- what was the first move? Like, when did you sort of pluck up the courage? Was there a, was there a conversation you had with a, with a boss, if you like, and said, look, I'm, I'm going in this direction. I know you probably want me to go in that direction, but was there, was there a moment like that? Yeah, so I think there probably was. And I was met with barriers quite early on, because I think within medicine, you either sort of decide that your USP is going to be around management, or it's going to be around academia, or it's going to be around, 
you know, delivery of clinical work, which of course is hugely important and, and we all need to do. But I think to do this kind of work where there's a sort of intersection with what's been known up until now, I suppose, is global health and where you want to make a difference, maybe at a political level, uh, to development agendas, that path is maybe not so well trodden, particularly if you want to carry on practicing medicine, which for me up until now has been important because I want to keep my feet on the ground in, in that respect for a variety of reasons. So I suppose I suppose I've carved my own way out like we all do in medicine. I don't think I'm any different to anybody else. And I think that I feel really fortunate and privileged to have been able to do that. And so I suppose my what, what I do now is a mixture of mentoring people in this country and in other countries who are interested in this area. It's a mixture of teaching and educating both in this country, making people aware of that and going to low and middle income countries and, and teaching and educating there of convening, um, for example, with London Global Cancer Week, which we've set up, which I'm sure I'll talk to you about in a minute, of networking, sort of bringing people together who are interested in this area, which I think is really important. And I think of of advocacy, because I think that we need to stand up and make sure that people are aware of the inequities of activism, because I think if you feel strongly and passionately about something, then activism flows and it just happens fundraising everything needs money so I think again you sort of get dragged into that as well of research because we know that research is the bedrock of how medicine moves forward so I think one has to have a, a foot in that door in some way as well a foot in that camp as well and of capacity building because I think that that's what is going to make the difference and, and make the change going forward so yes I, I think I found myself in my own small way involved in in, in many of those areas what was the first intentional move? Do you remember? So my first intentional move was realizing that, oh gosh, I hate the word power, but unless you have unless you're in some kind of position of power, it's quite difficult to change things. So I saw that there was going to be a vacancy for the role of president of the oncology section at the Royal Society of Medicine in London. And so I put myself forward for that. And I think at the time I was fortunate because nobody else was going for it. And so and I managed to, to get that position. And then I was in charge of what the meetings were going to be over the course of the year for the oncology section. And I decided, that, so this was in 2015, I decided that we were going to run a meeting on cancer control in low and middle income countries and work collaboratively with colleagues in these countries and with people in high income countries like me that had an interest in it and put on a day meeting about this and just see what happened and we did it and it was it was really quite overwhelming because people came from around the country it wasn't a huge number of people at that stage I think we had something like 50 or 60 people at the first meeting but it was a group of people who were really driven really interested who otherwise didn't sort of have a way of convening or up until then hadn't convened in the same place and it really started from that and grew from that and then that grew into an annual meeting which in 2019 became London Global Cancer Week which is now a much bigger series of events of events with with higher ambition so yeah I think that would be an, an, another one of my messages would be work out where you can have soft power and then sort of engineer yourself yeah. into a position so that you can then try and make change with other people makes a lot of sense and had you mapped something out at this point like did you think right i'm going to be a convener i'm going to people together i'm going to you know utilize all the best of 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 british oncology if like and sort of 
expose that to the world or, or actually it was just organic and it sort of gathered speed? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I mean, I don't think I sort of had the hubris that I was going to have sort of hegemony over global cancer control within the UK at that point. Absolutely not. I think it really grew organically. And I think often in life, man plans, God laughs, hey? I think that the best things often happen organically and many people bring their ideas to the table and then with passion, great things happen. And so I think that it was more it was more from that. And certainly from my experiences in this kind of area, I think things have worked out in a way that I couldn't possibly have ever anticipated, you know, in a, in a good way. So, yeah, I think that that, that taught me don't plan too much because really great things happen, even better than you could first have anticipated. And following this path, has that meant that you've, you know, had to give up other things? Like I'm thinking about, you know, certain career paths or possible roles or maybe it's even earnings like you know you 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 the route you've taken isn't maximizing your earning power are there things that you're conscious that you've had to give up so i've had to give up practicing to the same degree that i that i did before so um i don't do so many clinics as i did before because i think you reach a point well, I reached a point in the what I call midlife where you realise that you can't do everything. And I think you have to start focusing on what you think is going to be important and how you want to spend the second half of your career. So that's the position that I was in. So I realised that it was going to be difficult to continue on, you know, to go down an academic route or to have a huge clinical practice and do do this kind of work. So yes, I sacrificed seeing patients, which I love doing. So now I, for example, only do one clinic a week as and when I can. I don't see any of the rest of it as a sacrifice. And I think I'm obviously in a position of privilege that I have been able to do what I do. So I'm hugely grateful for that as well. Yeah. And what was what were your family saying to you and, or, you know, friends you'd studied with? Did anyone try and sort of talk you down from the, you know the focus on the developing world the global cancer picture what was the that piece friends and family and others what were they saying to you i think the only sort of comment i suppose i got from one of my senior colleagues was that perhaps this was something that i should consider peri retirement and i think that up until now many people in the world of oncology perhaps do engage with these kind of activities as they are near the end of their career. Perhaps that's because they have a lot more experience or because they have more time on their hands or, you know, it could be for a multitude of reasons. But I realised that I didn't want to do that. I mean, firstly, one never knows what life has in store, whether you're going to be well and and, and healthy towards the end of your career. One doesn't know that. But I think if you feel strongly about something, you want to do it now. You don't want to wait. And I think I felt so strongly about it that I just wanted to get on and do it. So it wasn't a conscious decision. It just happened. So being so focused on, so, you know, you talked about uh, giving up possible earning power as not being a sacrifice because, you know, your, your, your focus was on so much on helping, helping others, those who need it, need it most. Like, have you thought about where that comes from? What are the, what are the foundations? Is it the way you're brought up? Is it exposure to stuff much earlier in life that kind of, possibly laid the foundations so my mother was 
w- w- was very uh, I'm interested in in breastfeeding was a sort of I, I suppose world leader in that respect so um she wrote a book called breast is best which was one of the best-selling books on breastfeeding shortly after I was born actually and used to travel the world advocating for you know to encourage women to breastfeed so I suppose I saw a little bit of that kind of work through her and Yes, I don't know. I I suppose we're all driven by different things. Nothing's better or worse, but I'm just not hugely driven by money. I I don't particularly see that as a good thing or a bad thing. It just is what it is. So having a big private practice, you know, for that end didn't, not that I'm saying people necessarily just do private practice for earning power. Of course they don't. They do it for many other reasons as well. But yeah, I was never particularly driven by that. And having a mother with a, who's, a, who's a strong advocate and, you know, because what she did is quite a big thing, right? So it's possibly going against the grain. It's going out on a, and creating a platform, if you like, and, and trying to take people with her or, you know, trying to show people the way. Like confidence and um, you, like belief in your own power, if you like, or your leadership ability, like that, all of that stuff came has come quite easily to you and, and possibly because of the, the sort of journey your mother has taken possibly i mean both of my parents were leaders i suppose in what they did so i suppose i saw that from quite an early age and it's something that you just feel in you but i suppose if you feel strongly about something the the the, the energy and the purpose sort of carries you and you don't think about it so much it, it just happens yeah and You've convened these, you know, back to this, um, I think 2015, you said, in terms of you start to convene these groups and, and there's not a lot, not a whole lot of people attending, but there's, there's enough energy, if you like. When does it start to really gather pace? And did you, did you just get more and more people responding to your messages and your leadership and, the, you know, the, the meetings got bigger and they, get, they became more interest? Like, when did it start to evolve and change in terms of interest? So having having run it as a day meeting for a couple of years and just realising what the interest was, I think exactly as you said, it sort of grew. And then in 2018, I was working with a colleague called Mark Lodge and he saw what it could become and how we could grow this to involve more people. And so in 2019, it became London Global Cancer Week, which started out as several meetings and then last year ended up as many more meetings. And this year we had 38 meetings across the week. So it's really been about convening. Our mission has been around trying to get cancer higher up on the development agenda, educating, awareness, advocacy, activism. And and I think the most important thing is acting as a catalyst for change. So, you know, the meetings require some kind of strategic oversight so that many things are taken into consideration. So it's it's ended up as a meeting or as a series of meetings that, yes, consider, say, individual tumour types. So you might have a meeting on, say, we had one this year on prostate cancer because The Lancet is about to launch a commission on, on prostate cancer. But it also involves many cross-cutting issues, such as the role of women in the global cancer agenda, the role of climate change. And it also involves different geographical areas. So Aortic, which is the African Organisation for Research and Treatment in Cancer, held a meeting this year. EMRO, the Eastern Mediterranean Regional Office of the WHO, held a meeting. And I think that it's also important that we interact with politicians and policymakers. So this year, we were fortunate enough to have a meeting, a cross-party meeting in the House of Parliament at Port House. 
And we had a letter published advocating for overseas development assistance to be increased back up to 0.7% of GDP. So I think that that kind of political engagement is also important. And the strategic oversight has to also make sure that everyone is at the table because global cancer control involves a panoply of actors. It's not just a single discipline. So, you know, it involves people with lived experience clearly have to be at the centre of this. Healthcare professionals from a multidisciplinary, with a multidisciplinary approach. It's got to involve the press. It's got to involve industry. It's got to involve multilateral organisations such as the UN agencies. It's got to involve government, etc. And I think one also has to involve economists and people, you know, the people that um, hold the money and decide where it's going to be spent because without money you can't do anything. And yes, you know, as I said, engaging with politicians is so important because without political will, nothing changes. So I think that that is also part of the piece. And I think that that's what's so fascinating about this area is that it does involve, you know, it involves traditional science, it involves social science. It, 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 everybody has to be at the table for this to work. It has to involve all of society. Yeah, and it's a really good um, description of what, you know, factors uh, come into one of these meetings because, you know, on the to a layperson looking outside in, you know, a meeting we have lots. Everyone has meetings. Some of them are good meetings. Some of them are bad meetings. But you know, the factors you talked about: bringing power into the room, bringing patients' lived experience into the room, bringing money into the room, bringing experts into the into the room. All of those that really have to come together to deliver solutions for people with cancer phenomenally important and that you know you touched on it before around this inequality in the uk around you know we often talked about postcode lottery in terms of where you know if you if you got cancer and you're lived in one particular postcode your life outcome uh, was affected or could be affected and then we talk about that globally but giving a platform bringing people from overseas to these meetings um understanding their priorities all of these things it feels quite innovative or it feels quite new and, and it wasn't happening 20 30 years ago like this is this is a different approach like it was a there wasn't the um you know the, there wasn't the interest back then so i mean uh, yeah i'm not going to be arrogant enough to say that we have invented this of course we haven't of course there have been people doing this kind of work for decades but i think possibly what's new is perhaps bringing it all together in an annual event involving multiple stakeholders and you know in an organized way so we have a small management team who are employed very part time to help us run this which you need we have an international steering group involving people from africa from asia i think that sort of that that, that kind of way of organizing it is perhaps new and i think that whole networking piece really is what interests me the most and I think for me that's the most enjoyable part of it because at the end of the day you know as Bertrand Russell the philosopher said you know what sets humans apart from other species is you know yes uh, the, the ability to talk and make fire and have agriculture and write and tools and uh, and that but it's really large-scale cooperation that's what sets us aside and that inherent drive to share experience and knowledge with others is what makes us human and to feel that you know, this is an organisation is acting as a catalyst for change and for other people going off and doing great things as a result of these series of meetings, I think is what is most exciting about it to me. And if you, I know it's early days, but in terms of that collaboration, which is so important, have you seen some real change, some real positive impact in terms of 
already from you know the, the convening these get-togethers, these meetings, bringing all of those factors we said into the room? Have you seen some sort of real-life impact that's affected people's lives? I think it's being part of a big global movement, as it were, and it's being a, playing a small part in that. So there are heaps of these kinds of things happening all over the world, whether it's related to the large multilateral organisations or whether it's related to research collaboratives in different parts of different regions of the world. And I think it's it's all of these working together and sort of passing the baton between these meetings and between these groups of people and then forming a more embedded global network. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to make change. And I think being in it together, you, you know, it's, it's like that, that wonderful book, what is it, The Boy, The Fox and the, and the Mole? You know, everyone's a bit scared, said the horse, but we're less scared when we're together. And I think that it's, it's that, it's, it's working together. So I think often in these kind of large series of meetings, it's sometimes difficult to come out with tangible metrics but maybe coming out with tangible metrics is a is a mistake, and actually, it's it's often the things that you don't know have happened. Probably the sort of the most amazing. You know, it could be a chance meeting with two people in a room. You know, th- from a meeting that we held at the Royal Society of Medicine last Friday, for example, that will go off, and there'll be some incredible research collaboration that happens because we had people sitting in that room from every single continent of the world. I, I think, or, or certainly speaking last Friday, apart from Antarctica. So. I'm not going to know or have control over what happens or what has happened as a result of that meeting, but I'm sure there are going to be amazing things that have come out of it. And I think it's that that's that's really exciting. And, you know, taking a moment and, and start to think beyond speaking and meetings and talking, music. Let's talk music, Susie. <laughs> let's, let's talk about Ukrainian, Sudanese, British musicians getting together for cancer and uh let tell us a bit about more than fairy tales and and how there's sort of inspiration behind it and and what it's all about because yeah it's it's wonderful sure oh you're kind thank you so i think i think really when you just taking one tiny step back when you think about global cancer control we all know what's going to make the biggest differences you know you need a proper workforce we need a focus on prevention and early detection we need universal health coverage ideally so that people can be treated um, in an accessible health system where there's capability capacity we need cancer intelligence so we need cancer registry so that we know what the nature of the problem is in each of these countries we need to have cancer preparedness improved so countries should have national cancer control plans all of this needs to be properly funded with adequate investment we need to have long-termist approaches and we need to have sort of system strengthening. However, if one sort of looks at, say, decades ago, the HIV movement, what really made big changes in that was having a clear narrative, was having political will and was having civil society activation. And so I think for a clear narrative that's inclusive, that involves everybody, one needs to cross geopolitical borders, one needs to break down boundaries. And I think that great ways of doing that are through initiatives such as through sport and through music. And so the idea came to me about a year ago, because I, 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 like many of us, love music. 
that perhaps we could do something through music that would unite people and that would get this message out that, you know, the majority of cancer deaths are in low middle income countries. And more importantly, as we were seeing with conflicts, because we're at a point in time where, you know, over 50 countries now have active conflicts. So two billion people in the world live in countries in conflict for a multitude of reasons. And, you know, the average length of conflicts now lasts years. I think it's something like five to 11 years. And many of these become protracted and cancer doesn't stop for war. And I suppose I got interested in in this area through talking with a, a colleague who is of Sudanese diaspora and works in Canada at a meeting in America earlier on in the year around Sudan. And it, it, it just got me interested in these wars that become almost forgotten and aren't as high profile as some other conflicts. And what happens when cancer cancer care and healthcare systems become destroyed in these countries? Where do these people go to access care? And so we decided that we would um, do the song for that more as an awareness raising campaign rather than earning money. But I think if you're going to release something like this and put out some kind of call to action, you've then got to give people an opportunity to do do something. And so donating money is probably the easiest way. So you went for a search for some musicians and and I think I might know who you may have spoken to. (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly. So a lot of it was serendipitous and it was a really interesting journey. So I first of all approached my second cousin who sang in the Junior Eurovision Song Contest and now actually is a singer-songwriter. She writes for people like Netflix and Disney. She's fabulous. And she very kindly gave me um, unlimited access to her unlicensed songs. So I chose one of her songs and I thought, right, I'll have that one. And then I wanted to involve some people from Ukraine and from Sudan and managed to find some singers from both of those countries that live in the UK. And I was then very um, keen to have a choir of people who had been affected by cancer in the UK who would consider singing in solidarity. And so we set out to find some people um, that felt strongly and and wanted to be involved. Just touching on that for a moment, because there are, I think it's the charity, 10 of us had founded these cancer choirs, which is survivors of cancer or people going through the journey of cancer who are finding empowerment, finding enjoyment, finding sort of centering around music. And it's like therapeutic, if you like. So that cancer and singing it's sort of uh, been fairly high profile in the UK, hadn't it? Like it's it's been a thing. Yes, no, absolutely. And there is a, a wonderful lady called Vicky Hodges who runs choirs in hospitals and she very kindly volunteered her time to pull the singers together um, and coordinate the singing. So that was brilliant. And, and actually somebody who had had cancer who was singing in one of these choirs came up to me at the end of the day and said how helpful it had been to her and her recovery the, the day that we spent in the recording studio recording this song. So I think that there have been lots of wonderful sort of spin-offs of the project like that. And then I was at a meeting, I, th- I think it was just, yes, it was November last year that eCancer was supporting. And one of the editors there I was talking to about this project, and she told me that her daughter was uh, was a singer-songwriter. And, um, yeah, Jasmine Fox. Yeah, Jasmine Foxhorn, and she just has the most mesmerizing voice and is a fabulous composer, producer, just multi-talented. And so she came on board to the project and then it really flew. And I was speaking to somebody outside the school gates, one of the parents, and he said, oh, I've got a friend in the music industry. He's got a tech startup. I'm sure he'd help you. And I messaged him and heard nothing for a couple of months and then, but I, I, I didn't give up and I got him eventually. And as soon as he came on board, it just 
grew and yeah, it, I then knew that it was going to happen. My eldest daughter's best friend's mum very kindly recorded the song for us and signed it to her record label, which was very generous of her. Then we had a law firm that came and did all the legal work pro bono. So at this point, over 60 people involved. So it all became a little bit more complex and certainly beyond my skill set to organise. And then a PR company came on board. And so, yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting journey and I hope we'll have some impact. Yeah. The bit, the element I wasn't ready for actually when I first listened to it was, and I and I really liked is the um, there's some rap in it, right? So some some of the um, oh, yes. <laughs> so, which is a, which is a great addition, and I imagine like you said, you you know, you had no idea what was involved in producing, promoting, selling some music, yeah. and and but you do now. I do now. I think if I'd have known at the beginning, I wouldn't have done it, I'll be honest with you, because it is so complicated and it's really difficult to make money out of music these days with all these streaming platforms that earn fractions of pennies every time a song is downloaded. It's certainly not a way to make money. I think musicians make most of their money now from touring, if I understand correctly. So yeah, it was sort of a labour of love for all of us involved. And I think the, the drive and the passion for what is behind it really pushed us to do this. And having worked with colleagues, you know, on the ground and remotely in countries in conflict and at war, I think having seen that firsthand at at a personal level, that really drove me. So, yeah, let's hope. Um, (laughs) Let's hope it has some impact. Before this episode, before recording, we talked, uh, I think about a week ago, we're, you know, we're a few weeks on from the beginnings of the Palestine-Israel current conflict um, and, you know, hospitals destroyed and, and medical facilities taken out. And and you, you touched on um, the fact that you knew doctors who were scrambling to get cancer drugs to patients um Mm. that next morning because you know cancer doesn't recognize conflict or war and it just keeps on marching sadly and unfortunately but that you know you talked that that's across the globe yeah that yeah absolutely so and i think it's not just countries in conflict it's countries that are fragile or post-conflict you know for multiple reasons political social economic factors but yeah, cancer doesn't stop for war. And we know that cancer outcomes are worse in um, in areas and in, in, in countries that are at war for a multitude of reasons across the continuum. You know, screening doesn't happen. Health systems are destroyed. People are displaced. Um, you know, 85 million people globally are, are, are displaced. And this, you know, really, really changes workforce. It alters physical infrastructure, it damages supply chains and leads to worse outcomes. So I think, yeah, there's a there's certainly a role for learning from different conflicts, how things can perhaps be done better in the future. 
and, you know, possibly incorporating crisis management into national cancer control plans, for example. But at the end of the day, all conflicts are different. So, you know, what's the pre-war state of that country? So somewhere like Sudan, for example, was a regional hub for cancer care, for training people involved in delivering cancer care and for and for delivering cancer care. Surrounding countries used to come to Sudan for their care. Ranging from that to, you know, whether people can flee, you know, as we see in Gaza at the moment, people can't leave. So that also alters things. And what the degree of international support is. So, you know, a country like Ukraine has had huge international support, Solidarity for Fund for Cancer set up by various international cancer organisations. And other countries are, are more sort of inverted commas forgotten. So I think that it's important that we stand up for all, for all of these places. You're certainly doing your part. And one thing I was keen to know a little bit more about, you know, we've touched on your parents being an inspiration, but in terms of role models in your career and maybe helping give you the confidence to take the path that you've taken, but has there been somebody or has there been a a few people, where do you get your inspiration from to do what you do and to keep doing what you do? And you, you know, you're, you're incredibly busy. You've got a lot on your plate. Yeah. What's been the inspiration for you? I don't think it's been particularly one person. I think that it's probably sort of interactions, be they chance interactions, serendipitous interactions, or actively seeking out people who are interested in things that you're interested in from a multitude of different disciplines, be it, you know, anthropology, politics, academia. So, you know, I'm surrounded by incredible clinicians that work in many different countries that work so hard to deliver the best care that they can in their settings. And that is truly inspirational. People that think outside the box and think about, you know, anthropological consequences and and, and how they can interact and be important. People who campaign and lobby at a political level. So I think across, across the range, and I think, you know, as I said at the beginning, this this is an area which it, which interacts, it's like a Venn diagram, it interacts with so many other things that are going on at the moment. I, you know, I think if you think of the the six causes of, of omnicide, of mass human extinction at the moment, so climate change, artificial intelligence, pandemics like COVID and conflict, cancer really can sit in the middle of all of those and, and interact in a bi-directional fashion with all of that. And then, you know, factor on top of that other things that, that interact like leadership you know and how good national and international leadership can make such a difference to this situation how the economy is functioning how that interferes and and and, you know as we've said before how calamitous inequity makes such a difference you know the richest 22 men in the world have more wealth than all the women in africa you know never before has there been such high inequality within countries and between countries and this is, you know, we know this is detrimental for society, for health, for democracy, for human rights, for, you know, social cohesion, etc. So I think I think that the whole sort of geopolitical backdrop is also fascinating and, and interacts with this in such a big way that you um you have to have an understanding of, of all of it, really. And I think that that's what makes this area so interesting. When you think of those realities, does that get you down or does that actually just fire you up? I think probably the latter. I don't think there's time to get down. You know, I mean, co- the Collins word of the year last year was permacrisis, wasn't it? It sort of feels like we are in that lurching from crisis to crisis. 
but I think I think no, we have to be strong and we have to do our best that we can with the situation that we're faced with. There are always going to be crises. And I think building resilient healthcare systems that are going to weather those storms are what is really important. And what have you learned about yourself on this journey? Like you're good at so many things and you've excelled in so many areas and you're providing real leadership to that global cancer piece. What aren't you good at, Susie? Like what's, what's, uh, what's, what's, no, <laughs> that's 100% not the case. I would say that I'm very mediocre at things. <laughs> Maybe jack of all trades and master of none. And I suppose that is, you were asking me earlier on about the sacrifices that you make. And I suppose if you get interested in in this kind of area, trying to do what I'm trying to do with something like London Global Cancer Week and take a sort of broad strategic approach, you then are not an expert in anything. And I suppose at some level that is a sacrifice because I then draw upon my colleagues who are experts. But for me, that networking piece and bringing experts together from different areas of life, for me, that's what drives me and that's what I find interesting. So yes, no, I'm sadly not an expert in anything. So Susie, imperative for working with other countries and people with different cultures and there's you know huge wealth differences is that being conscious of the power difference or being conscious of the resources that you have or being being kind of good allies and respectful allies how do you work with other countries developing countries those that don't have the resources we have in terms of the medical profession in terms of drugs in terms of you know just treatment like how how do you show up in those and they're working with those countries. Yeah, so thank you for that. And I think at the moment, we're at a huge inflection point, thankfully. And I think that that whole concept of, of what we call global health is thankfully changing. So I think historically, it was all about sort of white men um, in high income countries and academic institutions, you know, albeit I'm sure with good intentions, the, the flow of money was high income country to low income country, the flow of power was high income country to low middle income country. And that, that is thankfully really shifting now. And there have been lots of high profile articles recently, you know, for example, Richard Horton's in The Lancet the other day called The Case for Global Health and this whole sort of decolonization um, agenda whereby, you know, development in low and middle income countries is going to be and needs to be led and delivered by people in these countries. And I think the role for people like me is working as allies. It's, you know, what's the definition of an ally? Of an ally? Well, it's a consistent or an active, consistent and arduous practice of unlearning, re-evaluating in, in how a person of privilege, such as myself, seeks to operate in solidarity with marginalised groups of people. And it's really about that. It's, a, you know, another way of looking at allies is action, listening, learning and, and yielding. And yes, I think it's it's asking um, or being invited to work with, with, with people in these settings or, or offering your help and if it's wanted and very much bi-directional, sustainable, co-led, co-developed, co-designed, uh, if not led by people in these countries. And I think that that's incredibly important. And those countries having a voice and are there, has that changed? Like, is that changing in cancer? There, there is platforms, there is ability for, you know, researchers, for oncologists, medic, medical professionals in developing countries now to have a voice and, and be heard? Yeah, I think that is exactly the case. And 
you know, yes, I think initiatives like London Global Cancer Week can act as a platform for people from all around the world coming and talking to us about what they're doing. And, you know, there are incredible things going on that we need to learn from. I mean, you know, just speaking to one of my friends who is an oncologist in Somalia the other day, you know, they're about to solarise the whole of their healthcare system in Somalia. How amazing is that? And other, you know, wonderful apps for navigating breast cancer pathways in Nigeria that are happening. And, you know, all these fabulous things, you know, we need to be learning. It's completely bi-directional. And so I think we're at a really exciting time. Yeah, really good point on, on learning. Absolutely. You know, being living closely with a medical professor, an oncologist, and know, knowing what he sacrificed earlier in his career and his life, and then seeing his obsession and no, knowing that actually there are sacrifices to be made, like when you look at your own career, there is like, as I'm just even back to when you study, right? So I always thought the medical students, I'd look at people studying medicine or at university or even at school who wanted to really go down that sort of route, you know, like when, out, when I went out drinking on a Sunday night and um, slept in on Monday and didn't make that, that first lecture, they were sacrificing all of that to, you know, make sure they made that first lecture but the sacrifice at every turn like when you think about some of the things or stuff that you've sacrificed because of your career like you you'll have got a lot back from that but are you are you sort of aware or cognizant of those things and that doesn't phase you just that you know maybe experiencing things or not experiencing things there is sacrifice in being a doctor isn't there I think there is to some extent, but I I mean I see it as service and I think that the most important thing in life is service that's what I would look at it as. So, uh, and I consider myself hugely privileged to be in a position to be able to do that on a multitude of levels, you know? So, yeah, I think it's about service and I think that's what drives you. And about equity and justice, really, uh, you know, the leader of the um, Centre for Global Health at the NCI in the US, Satish Gopal, wrote a brilliant letter to the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016 off the back of Barack Obama's State of the Union address where he was talking about cancer moonshots and all the money the US were putting into cancer control, which of course is hugely important and 100% needs to happen. But, you know, he was he then reflected on Malawi where he was working at that time, a country of 17 million people, and he said, I just don't see all these great changes in, in, in you know, great movements forward in, in cancer control that you're talking about. You know, the average woman here that presents with breast cancer has had symptoms for over a year and cervical cancer that we've had a vaccine for for over a decade is still the leading cause of death in women in this country. You know, preventable, entirely preventable cancer, cervical cancer. And, you know, he went on to say that shooting for the moon is important, but so is shooting for a world that's just and equitable. And I think that that's really the bottom line, isn't it? I think we've all got to keep on driving to cure cancer, which is, I, I'm, I'm sure, our, our end goal. But, you know, the world, we have to ensure that the world is equitable and that everybody, you know, from a justice perspective, has has access to, to cancer care as well. Susie Stanway, Master, thank you for joining me on Purpose Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 